This is a much different Sunday than we usually have here at Broadway. Uh, most of you probably know that this upcoming Tuesday celebrates an important event for the church and a pivotal moment in world history. Uh, perhaps you've heard about this in one way or another in the news or uh, in the newspapers or just around town today, that Tuesday is the, the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. So uh, this Tuesday, October 31st, is uh, more than just any normal Halloween. This is Luther saying, stop coming up and saying trick or treat. I said I have 95 theses, not 95 Reese's. <laughs> October 31st, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed these 95 theses on the door of that church that day. And these were 95 uh, various, very serious but very simple statements that he wrote about the corruptions and false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Uh, it's very short. I would encourage you, if you hop on Google and type in Luther's 95 Theses, you can find them. It takes less than five minutes to read. They're 95 sentences uh, that he wrote. I would encourage you to read them this week. And Luther, Luther posted these theses on the door of the church, and that sounds like maybe an odd thing to do. But this is a very common practice in that day. Uh, that's the way, if you had something to say, if you had something that you wanted people to read, that's where you put it, on the church door. And people would walk by in town, and they would say, that something was on the door and they would go and read it. So today we do blog posts and we do Facebook posts and we do tweets. Uh, back then they would post something on the church door if they wanted someone to read it. And uh, so Luther really didn't know or even didn't even mean to start what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. But with a very recent invention in his day of the printing press, Luther's theses were taken and they were reprinted and they, we would say today, went viral, okay, all throughout Europe and, uh, and the rest is, is history. And that really marked a launching point for what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And that was when a large percentage of Christians were uh, either left or were kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church or were burned at the stake and started new churches outside of the authority of what had become a very corrupt church. So we're going to talk a bit about Luther today, but it's, it's also really important for each of you to know that while Luther is a key person in this movement, that there had been many different groups of people, many different individuals for hundreds of years before Luther that had been challenging the Catholic Church. There have been people uh, outside of Europe, in India and in Africa, who taught and believed many of the things that Luther and the Reformers believed. But it, Luther is a key person, and then there were, while there are many other people, his, his actions and then uh, his personality uh, really were what drove uh, the remarkable changes that happened 500 years ago. So there's been libraries and libraries and libraries written about the Reformation and about Luther, and we can really hardly scratch the surface today on, on the teachings of the Reformation as well as the impact that it had on the world. But today I want us to look at three gifts of the Reformation that we have received. And this morning uh, during our service, I'm going to preach three sermons. Okay, sorry, three sermons. 
They're all going to be much shorter than usual, but three sermons where we talk about uh, these three different gifts of the Reformation, as well as to consider how to think about where we go from here uh, after 500 years of the Reformation. But before we do that, I just want to pause and just ask, you know, why take the time to do this today? You know, why, why is this important for us here at Broadway Christian Church to do this this morning? And the first, there's three reasons I want to give to you. First is this, to remind us of some of the important teachings of the church that have been passed on to us as a gift. We have four kids in our house, and we have two sets of grandparents who like giving gifts. So if you take four kids, multiplied by all of their birthdays, multiplied by all of the Christmases, multiplied by parents who also like giving their kids gifts, and we have lots of gifts strewn about the house, okay? And over time, gifts are forgotten. Most of them get played with and they're still enjoyed, but the fact that they were once gifts purchased at some price... That's usually forgotten fairly quickly. And the Protestant Reformation passed on certain gifts to us. Many of those gifts were passed on to us with the price of men and women's lives, with their own blood. Many died to pass on certain biblical truths that you and I very easily take for granted today. Some of the things that we're going to talk about today are teachings that we just assume are biblical, teachings that we embrace, but that thousands of men and women 500 years ago died to uphold and to pass on to us. So this morning we're pausing to remember that we, we stand on the shoulders and sacrifices of men and women who have gone before us. Uh, that what we believe to be true, that the fact that we can know these things and the fact that we can read them in our own Bibles, that your Bible is sitting on your lap today, these are gifts of the Reformation that you and I very easily take for granted. The second reason I think it's important for us to pause and to think about these things today is to remember our own history. If you are a part of Broadway Christian Church, you are a child of the Protestant Reformation, whether you like it or not and whether you know it or not. We are a product, for better or worse, of the events that happened 500 years ago. Broadway Christian Church is a non-denominational church. We do not have any formal connections with, with other churches or denominations. But if we're able to, to step back in time and to look at a, a church family tree of Broadway Christian Church, we would go back a couple hundred years and we would find that our roots are traced back to the Disciples of Christ movement, which was a marriage between some frustrated Presbyterians and some frustrated Baptists who came together and said, we need to be more faithful to what God is calling us to do. And if we move back even further from those traditions, the Presbyterian and Baptist traditions, we would find men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. And then further back on our branch, we would run into Martin Luther. As a non-denominational church, we don't often take time to give those things much thought. And an occasion like the 500th anniversary, it's an opportunity for us to pause and to thank God for the work that he did through Martin Luther and through the other men and women who protested us that we are not, as Broadway Christian Church, independent from the larger body of Christ throughout our country and throughout the world today. And it's been my prayer throughout this week as I've been considering, you know, what is, what is God's goal for us today? It's been my prayer this week that our time together this morning would give each of us a sense that God has invited each of us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. 
as evangelical churches, we do a really good job of emphasizing the individual aspect of our faith. God loves you. He died for you. You can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This emphasis that we have as an evangelical church is one of the gifts that we give to the whole church. We're reminding other churches this is an important part of our faith. And at the same time, we need to not allow that emphasis on our individual response to God to cause us to forget that God's invitation for us to come to him is also an invitation for us to come and to be a part of his church. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And I would be so bold as to say that you cannot love Jesus if you do not also love the church. As messed up and as broken as we are. So in addition to coming to know some of the biblical truths taught by Luther and the Reformers, it's my prayer this morning that all of us would leave today with a deeper sense that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves, both historically as well as in the present throughout the world today. So the first gift of the Reformation that we're going to look at today is the teaching that our salvation is in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. That our salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Here is the question that haunted Martin Luther. How can I be made right with God? How can I be made right with God? This is the question that haunted Martin Luther. Because Luther had a very clear vision of two things. He had a very clear vision, and I think one that you and I need to remember. That God is holy and perfect and righteous. That God was full of wrath toward his sin. And that God demanded righteousness from people. Luther had a very clear vision of that in his life. And the second thing that Luther was very clear about is that he was sinful and unrighteous. Luther was famous for going to the confessional booth and being there for hours, hours confessing every little detail of his sin. His conscience was absolutely tormented by the question, how can I ever be made right with God? And so he tried throughout his life, fasting and pilgrimages and offering penances and through all sorts of work, Luther tried to make himself right with God. And he discovered over and over and over again that those works would never never satisfy his own conscience, that they were never enough to bring him to a place where his works would satisfy a perfect, holy, and righteous God. None of those things that he did, none of those works were ever enough to make him righteous. And so Luther was called to do some teaching at a school on the book of Romans and on the book of Psalms. And through that, he discovered something that set him free. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A righteousness that comes from God and that is by faith. As he read this, he came to realize that righteousness is not something that he earns, but is something that's been given to him from God. Righteousness is from God. It is a gift. It is given through God's grace, shown to us through Jesus. And that gift is received by faith, by a response of trust to that gift that has been given to us by God. There is a righteousness from God, not from us, but a righteousness from God received by us by faith. And so Luther's individual struggle uh, that tortured his conscience was really what motivated him to do the things that he did. As you may know, about a month ago, uh, a friend of ours, uh, one of the members of our church, Shaden Moore, uh, did a, a one-man show on Martin Luther. And I've asked him this morning to come and to give us about 15 minutes of that show. And in these three different scenes that, uh, that we're going to see, we see Luther's very tortured conscience in the discovery that he makes that there is a righteousness from God that comes by faith. God's wrath is loud enough to shake the sternest soul who wears the cowl. At least it seemed that way to me. The Creator was portrayed for us by turn as our loving Father, or as the wielder of the thunderbolt. But to seek His Son as mediator was too often only to find the judge of the last day. Perhaps His mother would intercede with God and Christ on our behalf. She was a woman, after all. All sympathy and fickleness. Or if we found her too remote, we would turn to St. Anna or one of the martyrs to do the plea bargaining. Mercy was only as real as one's own guilty conscience would allow. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My mind wandered twice during morning prayers yesterday. I stumbled in the words of the Paternoster in Matins. I had an impure thought during my evening devotional. I was, I was angry with one of my brothers and didn't speak to him for several days. Oh, well, uh, not here, Father, when I lived at, at home. Well, yes, it, it was a few months ago. Yes, it's Luther, Father. But how can my sin be forgiven if I don't confess it? No, I hope not to be here six hours again, but 
But even that day, I thought of a sin which I had forgotten after leaving the confessional. And Father, what of the sins which I do not recognize as sins? If I cannot confess them, how will God forgive me? Yes, I understand that I am the only one who feels this way, but I'm trying to understand. What? No, I'm not ang- I'm not angry with God. But... Yes, Father, thank you, Father. <laughs> he told me to come back when I had something worth confessing. <laughs> there were times I felt that nothing I did was anything but sin. There is a pear tree in the cloister garden. It was the sweetest place to pray, to be alone. And there I could feel content, almost. Oh, uh, Father Staubitz, I didn't expect to see you here. You wanted to see me? Uh, why? Well, yes, I'll complete my doctoral work, but I've... to teach. At Wittenberg, a professorship... No, it would kill me. Oh, I beg your pardon, Herr Vicar, but I can't do this. In all honesty, I hope, or rather... I, I expect, I fear, I will die young. No, I'm not joking. I'm convinced of it. If not from my physical ailments, which I have plenty of, then because the Lord will not delay long to punish my gross sinfulness. Why? Because I have blasphemed. You told me to love God. That was all that was needful. How can you love a God who is a consuming fire? Who can love a God who is judging the world in anger? St. Augustine and St. Paul both say that God has already chosen some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. There is nothing we can do about it. Is that just? Well, is, isn't that the, the whim of God? How can we know what's in his mind? Does he delight in cruelty? That he hardens men in order to punish them forever? Oh, don't talk to me about his justice. That is just what I say he is not. If God is just, then I do not love him. I hate him. I've shocked you, Father. I shock myself. How can you say that? Well, if these fears are my meat and drink, it's no wonder my stomach is in constant rebellion. How can I make you understand? I'm walled around with terror, as if I alone had affronted God beyond hope of mercy. I lie on my cot, and the blood pounds in my ears like a sentence of guilt. The windows are eyes mocking me when I pray. 
The rustle of every leaf accuses me of unpardonable crimes. I don't dare look at a crucifix. Yes, I've prayed to the Blessed Mother. She doesn't help any more than my 21 patron saints. Yes, three for each day of the week. Vigils, fasts, I haven't eaten now in three days. But it's no good. I still can't ever be sure I am forgiven, accepted. There was no solution to my problem that I could see. But then Father Staupitz pressed me to teach. And who was I to refuse, <laughs> even if it did kill me? I finished my doctorate in less than two years and took up the chair at Wittenberg which had belonged to Staupitz. What was the man trying to do to me, I wondered. I was supposed to teach the Bible. I had never studied the Bible. We studied the Church Fathers and Aristotle. St. Augustine and St. Jerome read the Bible. Why should I bother? But nevertheless, I started a long study of the Book of Psalms. Come on, Luther, get to work. You can't put this off. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Well, this gets us off to a nice negative start, doesn't it? Psalm 2. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Don't I know that? But should I love Christ out of, out of, out of, out of fear? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I like that. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Those who love your name may rejoice in you. That's more positive. And here, those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Well, haven't I been seeking you? And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. But what if I'm one of the wicked? Who can discern his own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Yes, my, my hidden faults, but how do I know he's forgiven them? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, that's just how I feel, but I... And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
He felt it too. That great gulf as though the earth had swallowed you up and God couldn't reach you and didn't care. But why should the Lord do that to himself? Yezu, help me understand. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. King David describes it all, but, but why did he do that to himself? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But St. Paul keeps telling me that's impossible. What can I believe? Oh, where is that verse? Romans. Romans, I, I think. <laughs> Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Well, that's true enough. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Why didn't you show me? Why didn't I see this before? Why didn't you show me? I was too stupid, too stubborn. That's why I couldn't get to you with, with fasting and prayer vigils. You did it for me. You fulfilled the law for me because I, because I couldn't do it. What can I say to you? You are more than just. You are mercy and goodness itself. You've pulled me out of the pit I dug myself into. Now here I am. My stomach is ruined. I'll have insomnia for life. <laughs> but finally, I know I'm yours. Finally, I know I am yours. Do you know that today? We're going to sing a couple of songs uh, before I preach the next two parts of my sermon. But I want to invite you today that if, if you feel like Luther did in any way in your life, that your sin is so far beyond God's ability to reach you, that today that you can discover the truth that he fulfilled the law for you. 
that none of your failures are beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. No matter how deep, no matter how wide, no matter how persistent, God's grace is sufficient for you. And so this morning, if you today, during this time of singing, if you want to come and to receive that, that freedom, and to say, God, today I know that I am yours, I want to invite you today to do that. Would you stand with me and let's sing together. The second gift of the Reformation that I want to share with you today is a return to the emphasis of the authority of Scripture in the life of the church and in every believer. Luther and all Protestants insisted that the Bible belongs to every believer, that it is the first and the final authority in the life of every believer, that every believer should read it, and that in reading the Bible, that every believer, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can read the Bible and understand what it says, especially concerning salvation in the gospel, who Jesus is, and what it means to be saved. And the development of the idea of Scripture alone was a response to the Roman Catholic Church at the time, which taught that the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, with the Pope at its head, was the final authority on what Scripture said. And Luther and the other reformers like John Wycliffe and John Huss, a hundred years before them, before him, insisted that the final authority in the life of the church and for every believer is the Bible. The reformers believed, and your pastor believes, that the tradition of the church, the teaching of those who have gone before us, are helpful to us. They are useful to us. They help us to see our own blind spots, and they are invaluable to us, but they are not infallible. They are worth much to us to look back and to find out what the ancient church fathers and what the reformers said to us. They are helpful to us, but they can also make mistakes. The only thing that can't make a mistake is God's word. So the traditions of the church, the teachings of the church fathers, the teaching of the reformers, they can be guides to us. They can be lights to us along the path, but they are not the path. The path is the gospel found in scripture and the good news can and should be read by every believer. And what the Bible says is the final authority that all teaching, past, present, and future, must be measured by. This conviction led Luther and the other reformers to translate the scriptures into the common language uh, so that people could read it. Like John Wycliffe and John Huss before them, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and those who followed them were convinced that the Bible needed to be in the hands of every believer and that the Bible is the first and the final authority in the life of the church and in the life of every believer. And friends, I want to remind us today that people died so that you can have the scriptures in your hands today. Some of our Bibles sit on our shelves and collect dust. When was the last time you woke up in the morning to read it? For some of you, it's been a very, very long time. Just want to show you this video today. It's one minute. 
of a group of Chinese believers receiving Bibles. is God's gift to us. And the fact that we have it in our hands today is because men and women who have gone before us have wanted to make sure that that gift was passed on to us so that we could read it, so we could know it and know the truth that's in it. They believed in God and in his word so much that they fought to make sure that we could have it. They spent hours and hours and hours learning the ancient languages so they could translate it into English so that we could read it. This is a gift this morning. As we think about that today and the heritage that's been passed on to us from the reformers, I want to ask you, in what way do you need to begin to treat it as the gift that it is to you? The third gift of the Reformation is the focus on the calling of God on the life of every single believer. Before the Reformation, it was understood that there were some people who had a spiritual calling and other people who had worldly tasks to do. Priests and monks had a special calling from God. Everyone else, from farmers all the way up to kings, had a worldly task to fulfill. There was a separation between sacred work and secular work. And the reformers wanted to tear down that separation and taught that all people are called by God to do their work, whatever it is, to the glory of God. Luke says this, The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. But all works are measured before God by faith alone. All work has value in the eyes of God when it is done in faith and when it is done for his glory. Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the world's great musical composers, was born 200 years after Luther. Uh, after Luther. And he was a Lutheran. He was greatly influenced by Luther's view that all work was to be done for God and for his glory. And so he had the habit of signing his, uh, his musical compositions at the very beginning with the, the initials SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God. And he did that for works that were composed for the church as well as for works that were composed for the concert hall. 
He wrote those musical pieces for the glory of God, saying that all work that I do has inherent value and dignity when I do it in faith and for the purpose of glorifying God. And this idea is a teaching that has been passed on to us, and in many ways, we just kind of assume it. But this was not always the case. This was a radical idea in Luther's day that all people, the farmer in the field and the woman going about her daily tasks in the home, that all of that has God-honoring impact. It's a great gift. So would you stand with me? And we're going to sing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want to finish today by talking a little bit about where we go from here. We've heard about these gifts of the Reformation, and I hope that you are, are challenged by those things today. Where do we go from here? Where do the next 500 years lead us as, as the church? There are some people who have called the Reformation a tragic necessity. <coughs> a tragic necessity. It was a necessity because of what we've heard today. There was corruption in the Roman Catholic Church of that day. There was and remains false doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church that need to be corrected. The Reformation was necessary. But it was also a tragedy. The Church of the last 500 years is visibly divided. Over the course of 500 years, that division is not only now between Roman Catholics and Protestants, but now also visibly between the thousands of Protestant denominations that have stemmed from that. It's estimated there are over 25,000 different denominations. And that doesn't count the thousands of different independent churches like our own. There are wounds in the church, and the body of Christ needs healing. There's no one that believes that all of those wounds will be healed on this side of the return of Jesus. But all of us can seek to follow Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus has one church. Jesus has one bride. And that church is made up of men and women throughout time and throughout the world today who have, who know Jesus Christ who know that Jesus Christ is Lord of their lives by grace, through faith. And those are men and women who are Wesleyan and Pentecostal and Roman Catholic and Lutheran, or as we like to say, just Christians. But we make up this one body. I want to suggest to you that each of these different traditions have problems in them. Some of those problems much more significant, in my view, than others. But each of us have weaknesses in our faithfulness to the gospel. As well, every tradition has something to offer to the others, if we're willing to pay attention and to listen. Some strengths or some perspectives on what it means to be faithful that we can learn from others. 
The Protestant Reformation was a tragic necessity. And the challenge that I would, I would pose if they cared today to Roman Catholics, the challenge I would pose to them is to consider why it was necessary and why it is still necessary. And the challenge to the rest of us would be to consider why it's a tragedy. And for all of us to join together and to pray for healing in the church, to pray that there would be unity that is full of grace and truth, that we would not ignore truth for the sake of grace and not ignore grace for the sake of truth, but that both truth and grace would reign over the church. And so I want to challenge us here at Broadway to consciously join Jesus in his prayer in John chapter 17. This is uh, the, the last thing that he prayed on that night uh, before he, the night that he was betrayed and he was with the disciples and he was praying for them. This is the prayer that they heard him pray for them, the disciples then, and also for us, his disciples today. John chapter 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That is, the 12 disciples that were listening to them. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe, who will believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is a prayer that we can join in praying with Jesus, that Christ would make his church one, in complete unity in every way, and that we would grow in that more and more and more as time moves forward. This morning, uh, I'm going to ask that uh, we do something as a visible declaration of our unity with the body of Christ throughout the world, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together today. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient statement of faith It finds its source in the disciples of Jesus and in their disciples who wanted to pass on the very basic truths of the Christian faith. Remember, the earliest Christians didn't have Bibles in their homes like we did, and and most of them couldn't read. And so very early on, early believers and leaders and the disciples of the disciples wanted to formulate the core beliefs of what it means to be a Christian so they could pass those on to their followers. And over time, the Apostles' Creed came to be put into practice, and it is a summary of the faith that has been believed by faithful Christians in every time and in every place. As a statement of recognizing today that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves, both historically and the present, I would like for us to say it together today. And before we say it, there's a line in the creed that needs some explanation for us. There's a statement that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit in the Holy Catholic Church. And what you need to know is that you don't need to choke on that word. (laughs) And you don't need to mumble it even. And here is why. Here's why. The word Catholic simply means the whole church. 
or the universal church or the one church. And so what you are saying when you say that you believe in the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic Church is that you believe that Jesus has one church and that you and I are a part of it and that as Protestants, and here's the fun part, when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are saying that the one universal church does not belong to the Roman Catholic Church, that they don't get to own that word or that idea as their own, that it belongs to us as the whole church. So I recite the, I in my own devotional life, I recite the Apostles' Creed most mornings during my own prayer time. And and when I say it, and when I say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, sometimes I say it as my own small act of protest. (laughs) That the Roman Catholics don't own that idea. Okay? So when we get to that part, say it proudly as a Protestant, that we are part of Jesus is one church, his universal church throughout time and throughout space. Would you stand with me and let's recite the Apostles' Creed today. You're going to be able to see it, don't worry. (laughs) I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe God in heaven, we thank you that you are above all things and that you know all things. And we believe today that you led this tragic necessity to happen in order to bring a fuller grace and truth into your church. And we thank you for those men and women 500 years ago. We thank you for men and women 1,500 years before that. We thank you for men and women hundreds and thousands of years before that. We thank you for Abraham, who at the very beginning had faith, and that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so, Lord, we stand today at this time in this place as inheritors of your great truth, in your great story, and your great mission in the world. May we as a church here at Broadway Christian Church be faithful to your calling here in our particular place today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.